And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. If you have your Bible, will you please turn with me to Psalm 13. Psalm 13, if you don't have a Bible with you, it's reprinted on the back of the bulletins that we've handed out. This is our fourth week of five sermons on prayers in the book of Psalms. Psalm 8 was, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And we learned that worship and prayer is how we adore God, how we worship God, how we say of his mighty deeds and his character traits. The second one was Psalm 142, I cry to you, O Lord. So we learn that in our prayer life, we need to be brutally honest with God. Psalm 12 was save, O Lord. And then we learn that we need to be humble but hopeful as we pray living in such a strange world. Today, Psalm 13. I said last week I was going to ask this week, is this anyone's favorite psalm? Psalm 13. Anyone here? I did get a text message from someone last week after I said that. And the person mentioned that Psalm 13 was one of their favorite psalms. Psalm 13 is at least in my top five of psalms. I think it gives us the language that we need for a certain type of trial that we go through as humans. Psalm 13 reminds me a bit of road trips. We do in Psalm 13 what the kids do in the car on a long road trip. What do the kids say? Are we there yet? Or I have to go to the bathroom. This is the spiritual, are we there yet? Psalm 13, and saying, Lord, are we there yet? That can be worship if we understand the psalm correctly. Psalm 13 is worship for marathon waiting. Marathon waiting. And we need words for seasons like that, don't we? Let's go to the Lord in prayer first, and then I will read from Psalm 13. Heavenly Father, you have given us your word, and we're going to open it now. And we don't have to wait another minute, because you have promised to feed us through the preaching and teaching of your word. As our eyes see the words, as our ears hear the words, as our hearts receive these words, may every word out of my mouth be your nourishing words for your children. Build us up. Give us strength and endurance. And teach us. Do for our hearts exactly what each of our hearts needs. You know what we need, and you've promised to feed us. So may we receive your words this morning with obedience and joy. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 13. This is the good and glorious word of our patient Heavenly Father. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long? Shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. 
Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. The words of our Lord. Psalms are worship songs. They may function as prayers. You can pray a psalm to the Lord. You can sing a psalm to the Lord. In the Old Covenant, the people of God, the Jewish people, sang these psalms in their regular acts and cycle and rhythm of worship to God. And that's what we're doing in this sermon series. We're letting the psalms instruct how we talk to God in our seasons of prayer, in our times of prayer each day. And each psalm is worshipful, but not every psalm is really for every situation we go through. There's a, a Christian comedian named Tim Hawkins, and he does most of his humor with his guitar. He does a lot of singing humor. And he said that his friend once asked him, uh, hey, can you play in my wedding? Because the people who were going to play in my wedding backed out at the last minute. And he said, me? Are you sure? I'm a comedian. And he said, when do you want me to play songs during the wedding? And the friend said, when the bride's walking down the aisle. And he said, are you sure? What do you want me to play? And the friend said, well, you pick a song. And so in his comedy routine, Tim Hawkins suggests that not every song is appropriate for that. So he plays, you know, U2's, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I mean, that song... Uh, it doesn't really fit when the bride's walking down the aisle, right? Okay, when we're reading the Psalms, they're so diverse. They give us such rich language to talk to God no matter what situation we're going through. And we have to understand that Psalm 13 was written for a certain specific time in the season of our lives. And that is for marathon waiting. Now, you can worship God with Psalm 13 every day, every moment, but it is for marathon waiting that God's children occasionally go through. It's for desperate times. Psalm 13, as we read it, it's for those who have not slept for months because every night when they lay their head down and in their prayer they say, Lord, again, I have to face this tomorrow. I barely made it through today. Lord, how long am I going to be going through this? Psalm 13 is for those who are wrestling with their thoughts day and night. And that's why Psalm 13 is so shocking as we read it. I mean, wasn't it shocking to go from verse 1 to verse 6? Look at verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? There's pain in those words. Did you forget me? Is it going to go on forever? Are you, Lord, hiding your face from me? Do you see? Can you see what I'm going through? Are you aware? Have you turned your head away? I mean, this is such pain-laced language, and yet it's in a worship song. And that makes verse 6 so shocking, because how do you get to verse 6 through that? Verse 6, I will sing to the Lord. 
because he has dealt bountifully with me. Look at verse 6 for a minute. If that's all we had, if Psalm 13 was one verse, and it was, I will sing to the Lord, for he has dealt bountifully with me, what kind of disposition are you picturing the psalmist writing that with? A big old goofy smile on their face, right? I'm going to sing to God. He's been so good to me. I'm going to sing to God. He's dealt bountifully with me. You picture a smiling kid on their birthday after they open the best present ever. It makes us ask, is the person who wrote verse 6, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me, the same person who wrote verse 1? It's such a contrast. And yes, the answer is, it was the same worshiper. The same worshipful heart, worshipful heart, can say verse 1 and verse 6 in the same prayer. Because this is worship for marathon waiting, which some of you are going through right now. Some of you finished going through recently. And some of you are going to go through this year before we hit the end of the year. And you don't even know it yet. So we're going to work through this psalm, and because there's such a contrast between verses 1 and 6, we're actually going to start at verse 6 and work backwards through the psalm to see the logic of the worship. So let's look at verse 6 to start. I will sing to the Lord, for he has dealt bountifully with me. The posture of every human heart is worship. Every day we're longing for something. We're looking forward to something. We're hoping for something. We're planning for something. We're getting ready to purchase something. We're getting excited about something. We're, we're praying for something. And so the posture of the human heart is worship. And so often as sinful people, we are distracted by smaller things than God. We put our hopes in money or power or pleasure or entertainment or whatever it might be. But our hearts are always getting excited about something next. And so we have worshipful hearts. And we always worship something and whatever we worship is God. And so the psalmist is saying in verse 6, I will sing, that's worship, to the Lord. It can be actual singing, which we've done already this morning. For some of you, when you think of prayer time with God, maybe you start out with a song first. But whether you sing out loud with your voice vocally, or whether your heart and mind are just thinking worshipful things, that's verse 6. I will, with my heart and voice, sing to God. He has dealt bountifully with me. What is that word bountifully. We'll get to that in a moment. But singing to the Lord can be as simple as the children's song. I mean, it can be as simple as this. God is so good. God is so good. You can join me. God is so good. He's so good to me. That's a child's song, but it's a worshipful song. No matter what I'm going through, I can say, God, has been so good to me. That's verse 6. The humble, simple worship of a heart that has seen God be good to him. So what is Psalm 13 really saying? Well, the last line of verse 6, look at it again. He has dealt bountifully with me. There's a, a variation of Christianity which says that if you come to Jesus, it's going to be bountiful. 
You're going to be so rich. You're going to be so beautiful, handsome, attractive. You're going to be so successful, so influential, so famous. You're going to get a thousand more likes on your Insta. You're going to get more followers on YouTube. People are going to click and subscribe. If you just trust Jesus, everything's going to be like a Hollywood movie ending. And it's all a lie. That's not what this means. He has dealt bountifully with me. The Hebrew word there for bountifully is the word completely. Here is what the psalmist is saying. God's been good to me. God's been good to me. He's been bountiful. What is he saying? He's saying, he's using the word for when a debt is fully paid off. He's, God's been complete. The word means completely. It's when a wound is fully healed and a joint can fully function again. It's complete. God's been bountiful. It's when a fruit is fully ripened. This fruit is fully ready. It has all the nourishment it needs. It's the word for when a need is fully met. It's even the word for when a child is done being fully weaned. She got the nourishment she needed from mommy. So the psalmist is saying, no matter what I'm facing, which caused me to shout verse 1, God has given me everything I need. God has given me everything I need. Even when he's crying, how long, O oh Lord? He's saying, Lord, I did have everything I needed to make it through yesterday, and you will give me what I need to make it through today. That's verse 6. God's been good. He has been complete. He has fulfilled all of his promises to me. Well, what are the needs that have been met? That is verse 5. Remember, Psalm 13 is how we worship God through seasons of marathon waiting. So verse 6, God's been good. He's been bountiful, complete. Verse 5. Now look at verse 5. But, in spite of verses 1 through 4, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. So if you want to worship God in times of marathon waiting, there's two verbs for you. Trust and rejoice. Trust and rejoice. What do we trust in? What do we rejoice in in times of marathon waiting? Well, the two objects of worship are there. The steadfast love of God, his chesed, his covenant faithfulness, his loving kindness, as the older versions used to translate it, so the two objects of our worship are the steadfast love of God and the, what does it say at the end of verse 5? Salvation. That God has provided salvation. We know that God has fully and finally provided salvation for us by paying for our sins through Jesus Christ. Everyone who calls on his name will be saved. So in times of marathon waiting, we pray to God with a heart of trusting and rejoicing his steadfast love and his salvation. And his steadfast love is not fingers crossed, gee, I hope so. It has already happened and we've seen it on the cross. And his salvation has already been accomplished. We don't have to hope that we might be saved one day because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we can already trust and rejoice already in his steadfast love and salvation. The world is broken by sin. We've sinned. We needed a Savior and we need a God who keeps his promises, and God has kept his promises. Think about when the psalm was written, right? The psalm was written 3,000 years ago. What did the psalmist know about God's promises? Well, he could have thought, you know, God made a promise to Abraham, and he's kept that promise. God made a promise to Moses, and they walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. God made a promise to the people, and they eventually did make it into the promised land. 
And when they made it into the promised land, all their political enemies were defeated. So the psalmist can say, I've seen God do that and that and that. God has kept his promise. God is a God of steadfast love. But we know even more because we know that the final enemies of God's people were not the Philistines and the Amalekites and the Amorites and the Ammonites and all the knights. The true enemies were sin, Satan, and death, and they have been defeated because the tomb was empty on Easter. And so we know even more than the psalmist who wrote this, for when we go through marathon waiting, Lord, I can trust and rejoice in your steadfast love and your salvation. That's what we do. Psalm 13 is for marathon waiting. That's verse 5. Well, this is what we need to do when we walk through something like verse 4. Look at verse 4 now. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. For David and the Israelites, these psalms functioned as reminders that their God would defeat all of their political enemies. Israel was always at war with another nation, another power, another enemy. And they would say this, Lord, at the end of the day, at the end of this war, at the end of this battle, is the world going to see that you have prevailed and given your people victory or their gods have prevailed and given them victory? Who is going to have the last word at the end of this trial? Because David and the psalmist doesn't want to know a world where all the enemies are saying, yeah, we've prevailed over God's people. And they rejoice because God's people are shaken. Well, they knew when they went to war, God would give them the victory. Their enemy would not get the last word. Uh, look at the end of verse 4. Lest my foes rejoice, there's rejoicing because I am shaken. So the psalmist doesn't want God's enemies rejoicing and God's people shaken. But the reason he's saying that is because he feels really close to the point of being shaken. He feels like the trial he's going through, the battle he's facing is so desperate, so difficult that it's possible. We're almost at the point. It's the 11th hour. It's possible that this could end with my enemy rejoicing and me having my faith shaken. And he doesn't want that to be the outcome. He wants an outcome that brings glory to God. So at the end of this psalm, someone will be rejoicing. Someone will be shaken. But God keeps us from being shaken because God has defeated our enemies. So who is shaken when the tomb is empty? Sin, Satan, and death are shaken. They've been moved. Their world has been rocked. But there's an empty tomb which reminds us that God has kept all of his promises so we can rejoice. When we think about enemies, right? I don't want my enemy to say I've prevailed over him. In David's day, it was actual enemies, the Philistines. In our world, the word enemies takes on a new form. Some of us will be persecuted for our faith. Some of us will be mocked by family members or friends or neighbors. Some of you have or will face injustice in this world. Maybe some of you will actually face war and have a literal named enemy. But our primary enemies are sin, Satan, and death. So in our marathon times of waiting, in our prayer life to God, as we're talking to God through these situations, what do we do? We spend time, like the psalmist does, 
rehearsing, thank you, Lord, that my true enemies did not get the last word. We thank God in our prayer life, thank you, Lord, that my true enemies do not get the final say in my life. And that is something we need to do through times of marathon waiting. Lord, thank you that our enemies have been defeated. If you need some verses for these, here's one for each of our main enemies. Sin is in Romans 4, verse 8. Romans 4, 8. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Sin does not get the last word on a child of God because if you are saved by grace through faith in Jesus, there is now no condemnation for you and me. Isn't that good news? And all God's people said, Amen. Sin does not get the last word on your life, even if you sinned all the way to church this morning. Some of you knowingly laughed about something. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11. Here's Satan. 2 Corinthians 2, 11. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. You know, Satan tempts us. He's going to trick you. He's going to lie to you this week, this month, this year. But on the last day, when it really counts, Satan does not get the last word. He tried to outwit our Savior, and he lost. The tomb is empty. So Satan doesn't get the last word. He doesn't get the last say on your life. Amen. Finally, death. It's all over the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Do you know that death dies before the end of the book? The funeral is not the end of the story. Death has its funeral before the story ends. Isn't that good news? In uh, the Bible, the final chapter is Revelation 22, speaking of our eternal forward life in the new heavens and the new earth. The last mention in the Bible of Satan is Revelation 20. He doesn't even make it really to the last two chapters. The last mention of death is in Revelation 21, and the last mention of sin is in 22, Revelation 22, just near the end. But it doesn't end with the return of sin. The book ends with the return of the king. Here are the final two verses of our Bible. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So not the sin of your life and your track record be with you forever. Amen. The Bible ends, verse 21, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. We're going to sing, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, in a bit. And we mean it, because in his new heavens and new earth, sin, Satan, and death are not there. They don't get the last word. So now, Psalm 13, verse 4, Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. Remember, as we say, how long, O Lord, in times of marathon waiting? The answer is not, it's going to take forever. The answer is not, your enemies will have the last say. The psalmist knew his enemies would not prevail over him. At the end of the psalm, the psalmist is rejoicing because his enemies are are shaken. And at the end of your life, you can be rejoicing. Your enemies will have been shaken. That is verse 4. This is worship for marathon waiting. Jesus gets the last word even when the situation feels like verse 3. Look at verse 3 now. So helpful. 
Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. I said this in the beginning. This psalm isn't primarily for every situation. I know what you're tempted to do. How long, O Lord? You're tempted to say that when you've got some bad traffic, right? How long, O Lord? We were coming home from um, uh, Delaware last Saturday, and we had to stop for six different accidents. There was a two-car accident underneath the Easy Pass throughway, which stopped everything. And then we're like, is this, is it really going to be the, the, Psalm 13 is not for traffic. As tempting as it is, it really isn't. Psalm 13 is not for when you miss the game-winning goal in a soccer match. It's not. It's not. It's not for voting for a candidate who doesn't win the election this year. How long, oh Lord, will you forget us forever? It's not for losing a promotion. This is for a trial because look at the end of verse 3. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. This is for a trial that could end in death. Fading health, a diagnosis, war, actual war. Or it's for a trial that feels life-draining. It's for facing unflinching mockery and verbal abuse. This is for traumatic family dynamics where you just, every time you try to wake up and face the next day, you know how difficult and painful that day might be. This is for pain in your body that consumes your thought. You are in pain 24-7, and the doctor has said, we don't know if the pain is ever going away, and we don't know if the pain's going to get any better. It might only get worse, where you know you are facing this trial every day. This might be hard for some of us to imagine. Some of us have lots of resources to take care of our trials, our struggles, or even our pain. We don't often think, oh, it's all over. I can't make it another day. But some of you are in that season. If you're having trouble relating, uh, maybe a song will help. I'm not a singer or the son of a singer. Uh, but there's a musical, Annie. How many of you have seen or watched the movie version of that, Annie? You know Annie. Some of you do. Uh, it's a popular play uh, for a musical for uh, middle schools to put on, Annie Jr. My niece was just in Annie Jr. a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago. And so uh, it's on my mind. Annie's set in 1930s New York. She lives with other kids in an orphanage, and the place is run by a cruel woman. So every adult in her life is either evil or missing. Every day she wakes up, and the adults in her life, the powerful people in her life, the people who could provide are either either evil or missing. And every option in Annie's life is misery or injustice. And so her coping mechanism is to sing this song. She sings the hard knock life. And you know, when we think about worship— Singing, worship, is a way to cope with the trials of life. Well, she sings It's a Hard Knock Life. I'm not going to sing it, but the lyrics are, It's the hard knock life for us, her and the other orphans. It's the hard knock life for us. Instead of treated, we get tricked. Instead of kisses, we get kicked. It's the hard knock life. So her coping mechanism is a song, but this isn't what the psalmist is doing. 
See, in the, in the orphanage, Annie is crying out in despair. Every day is horrible. Every day is miserable. Every adult in my life is evil or missing. There's no hope. Annie is singing out in despair, and no one can hear her. But the psalmist, when he says Psalm 13, when we sing this way to God, we know we're being heard. Look at verse 3. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. There's that language, O Lord my God. The cry, how long, O Lord, is not from a peasant to a faraway king, or an orphan to an uncaring adult, or from a voter to an indifferent politician. And this makes all the difference. Who says, are we there yet? It's the kids who just don't know how long the trip's going to take. It's a child asking the driver, mom or dad, how long is it going to be until we get to the next destination, until we get a brief respite and break? How long, O Lord, in the Psalms, in worship for marathon waiting, is said by a child to a loving father? And he knows, consider and answer me, O Lord my God, that he will be heard. And that's absolutely vital because the trial of Psalm 13 is one that either you are going through, you will go through, or God will bring someone in your life this year to walk with as they go through. And you will want to know how to pray for them. You will want to know how to comfort them. You will want to know how to let them say things like, how long, oh Lord? Because the trial that the psalmist is going through, even though he knows he is being heard by his heavenly Father, is what we see in verse 2. Now we get to the meat of the difficult situation, the pain, the emotional strain that this trial is having on the psalmist. Look at verse 2. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? I've done a lot of counseling. I've talked to a lot of people, Christians, who are going through trials like this. And this is the report of someone going through Psalm 13 situation. Pastor Dave, every day, all day long, I am reminded of this pain. I am reminded of this trial. And Pastor Dave, every night, all night long, I am reminded of this pain. I am reminded of this trial. And I know it is very likely that when I wake up tomorrow, if I got any sleep at all, I am going to face it again. This is a marathon trial. This is worship for marathon waiting. Now the psalmist had a specific enemy in mind. Look at the end of verse 2. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? So the psalmist knew there was a tangible enemy he had in mind as he wrote this. But this is for the marathon made it, waiting of any child of God going through any situation like what you've heard this morning. Where your first, second, and third thoughts are to say to your heavenly Father, Lord, how long must I take counsel in my soul all day long, day and night? Which brings us to verse 1. Which, if in your heart you have verses 1 through 6 in your heart and mind, saying Psalm 13 verse 1 can be worship. Words of worship. Look at verse 1. 
How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long, O Lord, is the spiritual, are we there yet? These are dangerous words. Don't pull them out of your toolkit of prayer every day unless you're going through a trial like this. Don't pull it out when there's a little bit of traffic or when you get a paper cut. Pull this worshipful words out when you truly are going through a trial like this because these are not to be spoken lightly. I have shouted these to the Lord a few times in my life, in times of extreme and grueling marathon waiting. I've said, how long, O Lord? And you can worship God with those words, or you can doubt God with those lines. That's why this is such a dangerous psalm. We have to be careful. See, you can say, how long, O Lord, with disdain on your lips. You can say, how long, O Lord, as a complaint. You can say, how long, O Lord, with suspicion. You can say, how long, O Lord, if you even are there and care for me. Or they can be spoken with hope that dad hears you and will give an answer. And you can say those words with trust that dad is going to get you home. If you've got verses 5 and 6 in your heart as you say them. Verses 5 and 6 tell us where the hope is. God will answer. God does hear you. God is in control. So with verses 5 and 6 in your heart, you can say verse 1 like this. Dad, this is so hard. Dad, I'm exhausted Dad, I could use a refreshing drink. Dad, I need sleep. And without verses 5 and 6 in your heart, in your mind, as you say that, it's only despair. It's Annie crying out with no caring adult hearing her. It's a hard knock life. It's a hard knock life. But if you've got verses 5 and 6 in your heart, this can be worship because you are trusting that there is a God who hears the cry, How long, O Lord? So thinking of Annie in her orphanage, she sang, It's a hard knock life. She grew up without her parents. She wanted someone to love her as a child. But all the adults in her life were miserable people who treated her miserably. So she sings to cope. It's a hard knock life. It's a hard knock life because music can help us cope. But she also sings another song. Some of you know it. I'm not going to sing it, but I'm going to say the lyrics. The sun will come out tomorrow. Bet your bottom dollar that tomorrow there'll be sun just thinking about tomorrow. What does it do? Clears away the cobwebs and the sorrow till there's none. How does Annie get through the hard knock life? She sings. I'm in despair. I'm crying out. Maybe someone will hear me. And then she sings this song. You know what? Maybe tomorrow, maybe tomorrow someone will hear me. Maybe tomorrow I'll get through this. In her story, she hopes that someone will adopt her. Someone will love her. Spoiler alert, the sun does come out tomorrow for Annie. 
But when she's singing that song, it's not Psalm 13. She's crossing her fingers hoping she has no promise that she will get through tomorrow. She has no promise that the sun will come out tomorrow. Psalm 13 is totally different than those songs. Psalm 13 reminds us that God is good today. We don't have to wait for tomorrow. He will be enough for us today. He will deal bountifully with us. He will meet every true need, and spiritually, He will give us what we need from His Holy Spirit to get through the trial. We don't have to hope, fingers crossed, that we might be adopted one day by someone who cares, because in Christ, we have been adopted by a loving Father Despite the fact that we were once enemies of God, he looked on us with compassion and saved us from our life of sin and brought us into his family. We have a loving father who knows how long our current trial will take. We are adopted by a loving father. So our reality today and our forever forward life is eternal life with our heavenly father in the new heavens and the new earth. We have the relationship today. It's not just fingers crossed future hope. Psalm 13 shows us that God has been faithful. We don't need to wait for tomorrow. Psalm 13 shows us that God has been incredibly good to us. We rejoice and trust in his steadfast love and in his salvation. And that helps us get through today. Psalm 13 Put it in your prayer toolkit to minister to another family member, a brother or sister in Christ, or when you face marathon waiting. Because Psalm 13 is not how to get trials over with. Psalm 13 is how to have worship on your lips as you go through that trial. And no cloud in the sky can take God's goodness away because the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive. Our enemies will not have the last word because Jesus has already said it is finished. So no matter how hard our trial gets, even if it's as hard as Psalm 13, 1 and 2, say those words. Be honest with God about how you're feeling. We can also say with the psalmist, verses 5 and 6, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Maybe this year, maybe this week, maybe this hour, your prayer to God will be totally honest, like a desperate child to a loving father, and yet with complete trust. Maybe you will say, how long, O Lord, but I will trust you. And God, as we close, has an answer to that question. If your prayer today is, how long, O Lord, we know from Scripture what the answer is. There's an answer. How long, O Lord? The answer from God is this. Not for one second longer than your heavenly Father intends that trial to be for your good and his glory. Let me say that again. Let it sink in. There's an answer to how long, O oh Lord, made possible by God keeping his steadfast love and saving us through the cross, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. How long, O oh Lord, the answer for our hearts when we pray to God like this is not for one 
second longer, then your loving Heavenly Father intends that trial to be for your good and for His glory. Psalm 13 is worship for marathon waiting. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Lord, these words are dangerous. May we not ever say, How long, O Lord? with suspicion or accusation or doubt. May we come to you in times of desperation as children who know they have a loving Heavenly Father who is in control, who will show His steadfast love and salvation to us because you have dealt bountifully with us. As we cry out, how long, O Lord, may we have verses 5 and 6 on our lips. Help us trust you in seasons of marathon waiting. And help us love our brothers and sisters in Christ as they go through seasons of marathon waiting. Thank you, Lord, that you have an answer for how long, O Lord. You sent your Son, and he is risen. And he will return one day and bring us into the new heavens and new earth where for millions of years forward there won't be a cloud in the sky and we will never again say how long O lord help us trust that when we cry how long O lord we will know that it won't be for one second longer than you our loving heavenly father have intended this trial to be for our good and your glory so as we say, how long, O Lord, may the praise of your Son and our Savior be on our lips. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.